Welcome to Australia's Future with Tony Abbott. I'm Daniel Wilde from the Institute of Public Affairs. Australia is facing its most significant challenges since World War II. Geopolitical tensions are increasing. Cultural self-confidence is in decline. The values which define us, freedom, democracy, egalitarianism and sacrifice are being put to the test. Over this special podcast series, Tony and I discuss how Australia can survive and flourish in the decades ahead. Hello, Tony, and hello to all of our listeners. It's a great delight to be back with you for a very special discussion series with former Prime Minister and Distinguished Fellow of the Institute of Public Affairs, Tony Abbott. We've had an overwhelmingly positive response to the Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott podcast series with many, many IPA members saying, we want to hear more of Tony's analysis and insights. And I'm very delighted that we're back. Tony, it is great to be back with you. Thanks, Dan. Good to be with you and good to be with IPA friends and supporters. Indeed. I'm looking forward to this series and our discussion today. And before we get into it, uh, because this is the first episode of the new series, I just wanted to mention quickly a very important event which took place last week in Sydney on Tuesday, which was the launch of the Centre for the Australian Way of Life at the Institute of Public Affairs. And at that launch, uh, there was two very significant cornerstone speeches, one delivered uh, by Tony Abbott and the other delivered by Lachlan Murdoch. And we will discuss both of those speeches and what they say and mean about the future of our nation shortly. Just briefly, the Centre for the Australian Way of Life is a landmark research and communications program of the IPA. It aims to provide the cultural and intellectual leadership required to maintain and enhance the Australian way of life to give voice to timeless Australian values and to educate young Australians about their own history and about our nation's history. If you want to find out more, go to australia.ipa.org.au. As I mentioned, some very important speeches were delivered at that launch on Tuesday, but just before we get into that, I want to start with the question of the relationship between values and national security. The resistance and fight back of the Ukrainians has been nothing short of inspiring. And Tony, you've discussed a lot of this over the past couple of months. But it raises the question, would Australians fight back in a similar way if we were in a similar position to Ukraine? And that's exactly what we asked last week in a survey of over a 1,000 Australians. Uh, The question we asked was, if Australia was in the same position as Ukraine is now, would you stay and fight or leave the country? The results were pretty revealing. Only 46% of the total population said that they would stay and fight. 54%, meanwhile, said that they would either leave the country or they were unsure. Tony, what do you make of those results? They're pretty sobering figures, Dan, but I think that they reflect the fact that none of us have really imagined for a very long time indeed that we might have to do that. And if something is... uh, not within your ordinary sphere of thinking um, and you're suddenly confronted with it, uh, you tend to want to run away, mm. uh, literally and metaphorically. So, so wh- while we do have to be conscious of these figures and while I think there is some action required of us by figures such as these, I don't think we should from this conclude that were Australia under serious military threat, the Australian people would want to lay down their arms, uh, give up and run away. 
We've got to remember that back in 1933, the Oxford Union overwhelmingly passed a resolution that under no circumstances will this House fight for king and country. And yet just uh, uh, six years later, uh, most of them signed up to do exactly that, to fight for king and country. And I think something like 400,000 Britons were killed in World War II. And Churchill uh, and Britain led the world to the wonderful victory, which, uh, while incredibly difficult, uh, uh, did set up the modern world. Mm. And, and, and so the fact that just now, confronted with something that they haven't been thinking about, Australians are reluctant resistors, doesn't mean that we wouldn't uh, well and truly give a good account of ourselves should that time come. That's a fair enough perspective, but I just want to dig in a little bit to the figures that we found for young people, which I, I, I think are pretty concerning. And I take your point about, look, we're not confronted with a, a threat head on at the moment, um, but the figures for young people were only 32% of those aged 18 to 24 said they would stay and fight with the remainder saying that they would leave the country or that they're unsure. I think this gets to something quite deep, which is that young Australians simply are not taught about the values which define our nation and why we are a special nation and why we're worth defending. We know that you know the education curriculum is littered with a fairly negative self-hate view of our history that lacks balance. And those results for young people, I find deeply concerning. Do you share that concern or, or do you hold the view that you know things would change if confronted with a, a visceral threat? Uh, I still think that things would change if confronted with a big threat, but nevertheless, I do think there are areas of deep concern. And there's no doubt, Dan, that if you don't believe in your country, you're hardly likely to fight for it. And it is a worry that young Australians, uh, particularly school kids, are being fed a diet of intellectual poison. Uh, You only have to look at the various uh, coverages of the uh, proposed uh, draft national curriculum to know uh, that there is a tendency in our schools uh, to talk about Invasion Day, for instance, uh, to deprecate Anzac Day, uh, to stress uh, that our country is somehow uh, illegitimate because it was founded on the uh, unjust dispossession of Indigenous people and it's continued in a racist, sexist, homophobic way. Now, look, none of us think our country is perfect, and obviously there are historical episodes of which we should be a bit ashamed. Nevertheless, by any objective standards, our country is as good as any, better than most, and certainly the fact that we're as free, as fair, and as prosperous as any, uh, the fact that millions of people are... are clamouring to come to Australia all the time, um, really is is a wonderful antidote to that. And I think it's way past time when we counted our blessings, focused on our strengths and and inculcated a justifiable pride uh, in our country. And this brings me on to uh, the national curriculum. Uh, The proposed draft national curriculum, which I gather has been substantially revised, was absolutely disastrous, but frankly, the existing curriculum was bad, and the so-called uh, cross-cultural priorities 
demanding that everything from maths to PE to Latin be taught from an Indigenous, an Asian and a sustainability perspective. This is, if you like, a brainwasher's licence because it means that underlying every subject is this sense of national illegitimacy, this sense of uh, environmental devastation and this sense of cultural inadequacy. So the best thing we could do, frankly, is, is not just play around at the edges, but tear the whole damned thing up uh, and start again from scratch on the basis of historical truth and academic rigour. And while, as I say, there is some reportage over the last few days suggesting that the draft national curriculum has been heavily revised... I know how easy it is for bureaucrats to snow ministers. I know how persistent um, left-wing cultural Marxism is in so many departments around the country. Uh, I I would want to see uh, the actual teaching documentation that is going out. Uh, And frankly, I would want to sit in on quite a few classes before I was confident that our kids were getting the academic rigour and the historical truth they need. Well, perhaps we should be live streaming mm. some of the classes in civics and, and history so mm. parents and, and the rest of us know what's well, actually that's, being taught. That's a, that's a, a very, very good point. Uh, I mean, there needs to be a lot more transparency about what happens in, in the classroom. And you're right. Uh, why shouldn't it be live streamed? Why should what happens in the classroom... Uh, be a secret between the teachers and the kids uh, where the teachers don't tell and the kids don't know. Mm. What would you teach in the national curriculum? And just to set this up, uh, your speech which you delivered on Tuesday was very significant and very important. There was coverage of that in the Daily Telegraph, which everybody can read. We had lots of positive feedback on that speech. And you gave three examples of tangible achievements of Australia, Victoria invented the secret ballot, South Australia was the first place to give women the right to stand for Parliament, and Queensland was the first place to have a democratically elected, constitutionally formed worker government. And there are many, many other achievements. You mentioned we're not a nation without fault, but we've also corrected our faults. The 1967 referendum, Mm. for example, recognised it was wrong to exclude Indigenous Australians as being Canada's equals, and over 90% of Australians said, we want to have a colourblind constitution, let's be equal under our constitution, and voted to remove those divisive references to race in the constitution. I think if we told the story of Australia as making pioneering advancements in freedom, tolerance and democracy, those numbers that I quoted of those willing to fight would be much higher. But what would you have in your national curriculum, Tony? Well, it's good that you asked that, Dan, because one of the first projects of the Centre for the Australian Way of Life has been the publication of a draft Australian canon. The sorts of books um, and poems, uh, the art, uh, the culture, the architecture that... Australians should be familiar with Uh, and I'd like to see this Australian canon further developed and refined. I'd like to see it more widely discussed Mm. and I'd then like to see it uh, adopted by educational authorities uh, as an important part of of the curriculum. So that's the first thing. Second thing, Dan, um, in conjunction with the IPA, Um, I'm going to publish uh, a new history of Australia. 
I won't pretend that this is going to be based on original research. It will be, I hope, a popular history of Australia uh, based on the best secondary sources. But I will attempt to tell our story uh, with the blemishes, but with all the things as well that we can take pride in. Mm. Uh, because it is extraordinary how historically ignorant even well-educated Australians are. I was sitting down with uh, uh, my five cycling companions this Australia Day past uh, for, a, for the post-bike ride cup of coffee and mm. I was far from certain that three of the six understood the distinction between Captain Cook and Governor Phillip. <laughs> Now, it's a bit of a worry uh, that even well-educated, highly qualified uh, people who are senior in business and the professions are hazy about things like this. Uh, I I know all of us have gaps in our knowledge and understanding, um, and I wouldn't want to be subjected to any test where I was expected to get 100 out of 100. But Captain Cook... Uh, discovered the east coast of Australia for the Europeans. Governor Philip uh, led the first fleet, which began the uh, British settlement of this country. Both remarkable, remarkable human beings who deserve to be better known and more widely celebrated. Uh, Captain Cook was one of the world's greatest ever explorers, one of the world's greatest ever Sailors and a man of remarkable humanity, as his, as his diaries um, uh, and expedition records show. Governor Philip was really the founder of modern Australia, um, pretty close to the equivalent of uh, George Washington to mm. America, uh, or Lee Kuan Yew to Singapore, mm. and yet uh, he's almost lost in the mists of time to us. And we should remember and celebrate the great people who have contributed to who we are, and he certainly is one of the very foremost. Mm, it's an important point you make, and what people sometimes forget is when the First Fleet arrived, it wasn't just to set up a penal colony. They arrived with the values of the Enlightenment informed by Britain's Judeo-Christian heritage, at the centre of which is the dignity of the individual, concepts of freedom, democracy, tolerance, which I think Australia's history is the story of the unfurling of those values as we've expanded them. We haven't got everything right. But on the big things over the long term, we've got most things right. And as you say, that's why millions of people come here uh, on their own volition. Exactly right, Dan. The First Fleet didn't just turn up uh, with people and some provisions and a few implements of building and farming, the first fleet turned up with a whole culture and civilization, And again, whatever its deficiencies, it was the most advanced culture and the most beneficent civilization uh, at that stage known to man. Uh, we have taken that marvelous heritage of British and Western civilization, and we've improved upon it here in this country while still being an important part of it. Mm. Just one other point that you made in your speech, Tony, that I wanted to elaborate on a little bit is you argued that basically from day dot, from settlement, 
the ethos of what was to become the Australian people was to get on with it, mm-hmm. uh, to have a go, to develop our settlement uh, through agriculture and later through the development of uh, gold, you know, wool, gold, iron ore, coal, gas. These have formed the basis of our prosperity from people that have gotten on with it, built their lives, developed a vibrant civil society. Um, can you elaborate on what that says about who we are as a people and perhaps how that makes us a bit different to our uh, parent uh, or the motherland in, in Britain and also our cousin in the United States? Okay. Uh, Dan, look, I, I think that uh, every Western country is uh, suffering a touch of affluenza. Um, we have had it so good for so long notwithstanding the pandemic and notwithstanding the storm clouds which are rapidly gathering at this time. But we have had it so good for so long that I think we have um, lost something of our resilience, something of our grit, uh, the resilience and grit and stoicism that characterised earlier generations, not just here but um, throughout the, the West, but particularly in Britain and America. Uh, but I think that the... the wonderful characteristic of Australia uh, is that we are an immigrant society. Uh, we, we learn from our history. We're not controlled by our history. Uh, our history should lift us up, uh, but it shouldn't weigh us down. Um, it's interesting, um, when in Europe, as I was recently, just prior to the uh, horrific Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, I was discussing with the representatives of other European nations uh, this particular problem and they were less concerned about uh, the impending Russian aggression than they were with the supposed ill-treatment of some of their own minorities within Ukraine, minorities which had been there for over a hundred years. Now, anyone coming to Australia from somewhere else a hundred years later would be well and truly integrated if not completely assimilated. And yet that doesn't happen uh, in Europe. Um, I'm, not, I'm not being critical of, of Europe, which is the cradle of civilization in so many ways, but the wonderful thing about Australia is that we tend not to pigeonhole people. Uh, We tend to take them as we find them. Uh, We're open to them. Uh, We assume that uh, we're all as good as each other. Uh, We're all going to have a go. We're all going to join Team Australia uh, where we all have the same basic rights, basic responsibilities and and basic fundamental values. And, And that's not true to quite the same extent. Uh, even in some of the other countries that we greatly like and admire. Mm. It's an important observation, and I just want to build on that a a little bit, about whether you think that is as true today as it was in the past. Uh, If we go back to the post-World War II... It's definitely under threat from identity politics. Definitely under threat. Uh, I I mean, the the error, uh, the deep wrong in identity politics is, is... this uh, forgetfulness of our common humanity and this focus 
on a particular characteristic, our maleness, our femaleness, our sexuality, our race, our religion, etc. Um, I'm not saying these things are insignificant, but nevertheless, in the end, uh, as John Howard and Bob Menzies said, the things that unite us as Australians should always be more important than anything that divides us. And frankly, uh, if we are to have uh, a peaceful and genuinely progressive world, we've always got to focus on our common humanity, even while we sometimes have to fight uh, for the absolutely vital freedom and independence, uh, which is so important to our to our future. Well, one of those things that unites us or has the potential to unite us, and this builds on your point about this sort of stoic optimism, and I want to refer to Lachlan Murdoch's very important speech that he delivered at the launch last Tuesday, and everybody can go uh, to the Australian website. It was published uh, in uh, the Inquirer. We must steel ourselves to protect an Australian way of life. And you can also view uh, Lachlan's speech uh, on YouTube, and I would encourage everybody uh, to do so. He used the term steeliness, uh, which I believe was uh, taken from uh, his father, Rupert, to describe something that's fundamental to who we are as an Australians. And it's a great term that I had not heard before used in that context. Um, and I just want to quote uh, something that uh, Lachlan said and to get your reaction uh, and thoughts on that. Uh, and I quote here, I am always saddened when elements of our citizenry, often the elites who have benefited most from our country, display not a love of our values but a disdain for them. This is why some of what sets Australia apart is under threat. Our core values, our successes, and even our history are under constant attack. End quote. That's quite a significant observation uh, from Lachlan Murdoch that the elites, those who benefit most, are often those likely to have the most negative and pessimistic view. Couldn't agree with Lachlan more, Dan. Uh, it, it, is, it is sad. Uh, I often say that to have the right to live in Australia is to have won the lottery of life and yet uh, it's a lottery win that we far too often take for granted. Uh, far too many of us are like the lottery winners that then blow the dough, <laughs> you know, uh, kind of a splurge of indulgence, you know, an explosion of, uh, of indulgence. So, so look, he, he's, he's right. It's, it's interesting. None of our recent migrants take the country for granted. Um, and and if, if you want to hear people saying wonderful things about Australia, uh, jump into a taxi, invariably driven by someone who is a relatively recent migrant, and they will tell you, um, they'll usually volunteer what a great place it is and how lucky they are to be here. Same thing happens in America. Jump into a taxi or a hire car in America and you will be regaled with um, how wonderful it's been for the taxi driver's family. Invariably, the taxi driver turned up with next to nothing, and the taxi driver's kids are now uh, lawyers and doctors and business people or professors, and uh, it's a great story. I mean, this is the, the, uh, the wonderful feature of immigrant countries such as ours, that people come here with nothing in their bag except hope, and they make a wonderful, wonderful life for themselves and their kids. So it's a great story, and 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 yet, too many of us who should know better, take it for granted. And 
Again, that's why it's important to know the true history of our country, uh, not to be fixated on the uh, uh, rare disappointment or disaster, uh, but to look at it uh, from from to look at it holistically, mm. because holistically, it's something that any fair-minded thinker would have to praise. Well, just to round off this part of the conversation, Tony, I just wanted to close here with a quote again from Lachlan, from his, Lachlan Murdoch from his speech, which goes exactly to what you're saying. And I quote, We, as in Australians, have a visceral sense of what we call a fair go. This is our own idea, a deeply rooted understanding that whatever our circumstances, we deserve the same opportunities, the same respect, the same fair go. It is why we welcome immigrants embrace aspiration and scoff at class-based deference, end quote. Well said, Lachlan, uh, and uh, long may uh, that speech uh, echo uh, through our society. Indeed. Uh, Tony, just to close off our chat today, uh, you have a very important analysis published in The Australian about the situation in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've put a lot of thought into that speech, uh, into that um, article, and you've made some observations and recommendations as to what the Australian government might do to further assist the inspiring resistance of the Ukrainians. Can you tell us your analysis and what you think the Australian government might be able to do? Thanks, Dan. Well, last Friday, in response to President Zelensky's inspirational address to the Australian Parliament, Prime Minister Morrison uh, agreed with alacrity uh, to uh, the Ukrainian request for the dispatch of the Bushmaster armoured personnel vehicle uh, to Ukraine. Uh, I hope we will send considerable numbers of Bushmasters. Uh, We've got about a thousand in our inventory. Uh, There'd be no reason why we couldn't send a hundred without uh, seriously eating into our own capabilities. And the idea of 100 Australian Bushmasters uh, going into the Ukraine uh, to help uh, enable the Ukrainian armed forces to prevail over the invader, uh, I think, is, uh, is pretty special. Mm. Uh, I'm not saying that at this stage uh, NATO and its partners should themselves intervene in this conflict, although I think it's very, very important uh, that some red lines be drawn Uh, so that the Russians do not uh, uh, feel that they can increase their barbarity with impunity. Uh, But given that Putin's ambitions uh, are by no means limited to the Ukraine, Putin's ambitions are to recreate Greater Russia, uh, which of course includes uh, the Baltic states, Poland, Georgia, Moldova and elsewhere, I believe as a NATO partner we should be ready uh, to to help... uh, buttress NATO's vulnerable eastern flank uh, and that means giving very serious consideration to any request should it come uh, for Australian tanks and planes uh, to go to Poland or the Baltic states. Uh, This is a very, very fraught time, not just for the Ukrainians uh, who are fighting heroically for their freedom and by extension our freedom, but for the wider world. There's no doubt that if Putin is ultimately victorious in Ukraine, uh, this will just be the latest conquest, not the last. And if Putin is victorious in Eastern Europe, uh, there's no doubt 
that we will see uh, Chinese aggression uh, in East Asia, uh, which uh, has the potential to, to completely derange the entire global order upon which the peace, uh, the freedom and the prosperity of the world has rested for seven decades. Mm, Tony, well said. And I think the topic of Chinese expansionism and the build-up of their military will be a topic for a future episode for us because there's a lot to talk about there. So we'll leave today's discussion there. Thank you again, Tony. And again, it is wonderful to be back having these discussions and I'm very much looking forward uh, to them continuing over the coming months. Me too, Dan. Great. Thank you, Tony. This is a production of the Centre for the Australian Way of Life at the Institute of Public Affairs. To find out more, visit australia.ipa.org.au.